this on your large print sheets as well. 1,661. Reading verses 9 through 10 in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Revelation 6, 9 through 17. Hear now the word of God. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Well, my friends, as we look at this last half of chapter 6 in the book of Revelation, we are looking at the martyr's cry and divine vengeance. The martyr's cry and divine vengeance. So today, I'll be looking at part 1, dealing with the fifth seal. The overall theme is, the Lord avenges his people who are put to death, of the word of God and their testimony. So the Lord avenges his people who were put to death because of the word of God and their testimony. As you can tell, this is the section of the seven seals. We've already looked at chapters 4 and 5, which provide the backdrop. Chapter 4 of Revelation, we see the Father all glorious on the throne the four living creatures, the four cherubim, angelic-type beings, and the 24 elders representing the church, Old and New Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, 12, 12 apostles, the 24 elders, along with the four cherubim, together offering up their praise and worship to the Creator. Chapter 5, the lion from Judah, the lion children from Judah, who is really the lamb, isn't that interesting, who alone 
is worthy to open the sealed book and thus to put into effect God's plan. That lion, lamb, is revealed. It's the lamb who stands, though slain. And worship, of course, is accorded him by the cherubim and the elders. Myriads of angels, thousands, tens of thousands of angels, and every created thing offering up praise to God. Then in the beginning of chapter 6, we see the opening of the first four seals. These are, there in chapter 6, we see the four horsemen. You have heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse of the book of Revelation. That's what we have here at the beginning of chapter 6. First of all, the white horse and rider with his bow, as in bow and arrow, crown, who's gone forth conquering and to conquer. Of course, this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who rides out of heaven on his white charger, but who also then commands these next three, these next three horsemen as well. The red horse and rider, red implying blood. And apparently this is a reference to religious persecution, which was the context certainly in the first century. Then the black horse and rider, the idea of famine, you know what it's like to, you know, famine, starving. And also the scales, like balances, like you go in, you see balances in a, or scales in a, in a grocery store. And so the scales then to measure, to measure out things, pointing, first of all, to scarcity of these goods and also to injustice. So the black horse and rider and then the pale horse and rider, and that pale is not like a pink color. It's rather a pale green color, sickly green, like the color of a corpse, of a dead body. The name of the rider was Death, with Hades, the place of the dead, following. And here, in terms of that fourth rider, we have all kinds of unnatural deaths that are mentioned by means of sword, to kill with sword, with hunger, famine, with death or pestilence, like a plague. We, we don't know anything about plagues, do we? Like a plague. And then also with wild beast that can rip people to pieces. That's the background that we've already seen now we come to the end of chapter 6 of Revelation. Let me say that this is a difficult text that is in front of us. The primary difficulty is trying to determine to which or to what time period the text is referring. Is it all of church history that is being referred to? Is it all of church history with the culmination being the final judgment and that's going to be the vindication. Or is it a period of time in church history that is directly in view with a temporal judgment? That is to say, a judgment in time, in time and space, a judgment in history before we get to the final judgment. So that's the question. 
Now, I had us read Matthew 24 in its entirety today, as it may provide the interpretive key. So think of this as like, like you've got a lock, and then you need a key to unlock the lock and to reveal what's going on here. It's very interesting when you read Matthew 24. A lot of people think that Jesus is answering both questions at the same time that the apostles have at the beginning of Matthew 24. But actually, I would suggest that is not true. Towards the end of Matthew 24, Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Of that day and hour, no one. In other words, when Jesus is coming back, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven know when Jesus is going to come back. It's a secret, and there's going to be no particular warning in terms of it. People are going to be going about their regular, their regular activities, and Jesus is going to come back with the blowing of the trumpet. It's going to be loud. It's going to be overwhelming. That's the end of history. But prior to that, in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus refers to several definite events, saying, these are things you need to be on the lookout for. These are warnings that there is a judgment coming. And what is that judgment? In context, it was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It was the destruction of the capital city It was the, of, of the Jews. It was the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So that, that magnificent building, the temple, that took 46 years to construct, Jesus said there's not going to be one stone left upon it. That's going to be the destruction. You read Josephus great Jewish historian from the first century, and he talks about probably a million people or so that were slaughtered in Jerusalem during that time. In other words, there is temporal judgment. There is judgment in history, in time and space that was in view at the beginning of Matthew 24. And that reality would also fit with other prophetic pronouncements in Scripture. For example, the Minor Prophets. Now, I don't know what Dr. Horton is going to be talking about next uh, Lord's Day for the adult class, but I know it's going to be a surprise me if it has a theme of judgment. But most of the time, those prophetic announcements, those prophetic pronouncements have to do with judgments in history rather than the end of history. So that's the question that's in front of us here. Is this referring to the end of time in terms of the vindication of the elect, or is it along the way? Now, the good news here, here's the good news. We don't have to make an absolute decision as to that, because whichever view we take of the time period, whether we say this is referring to the end of history, where the final judgment when Jesus physically, bodily comes back, or whether we believe that it is more in terms of one of those other comings of the Lord Jesus in judgment, in time and space, in history, the application is essentially the same. And so whichever view we take of that, we can still, we can still be very confident in terms of the general point. So let's look then at this fifth seal, this fifth seal. 
Notice that it has to do with the martyrs. First of all, we see in verse 9, when he opened or when he broke the fifth seal. Notice that it is Christ by his spirit who provides for the martyr's cry. It is Christ by his spirit, as he sends forth his spirit, it is Christ himself that gives them the very grace to pray. He broke the fifth seal, and what happens is that here we have the martyrs, by his grace, crying out to God. Of course, he does so, the Lord Jesus does so on the basis of his death, on the basis of the fact that he has purchased salvation for us, and the basis of the fact that he has purchased, he has bought with his blood all spiritual benefits, even including the ability of these martyrs to pray for vengeance. And notice John says, and I saw He was witnessing, he was witnessing what took place. Now, let me pause here just a moment and say, what is a martyr? Martyros in the Greek. What means a witness? That's what what martyros means, a witness. But it also usually carries this very definite understanding. It's not simply one who has witnessed, who has borne witness, who has borne testimony to the gospel, to the word of God, but also one who has suffered, particularly suffered death. So when we talk about the martyrs of the church, we're talking about those who have died for the word of God and their testimony. And that's the picture that you find here. Notice what it says here. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. So under the altar... This was the altar of sacrifice. This was the altar where the blood would run. And who were there? Who were there but these martyrs? Those who had been slain. Those who had been killed for the word of God and the testimony which they held. That word, by the way, there, in terms of those who had been slain, is the same word as found back in verse 4, that people should kill one another. That's why we believe that this, that there in, the, in verse 4 is a reference to religious persecution. In other words, these are those, the martyrs, these are those whose lives had been butchered on the altar of consecration, of devotion to Christ Jesus. What were the immediate causes? Well, as we mentioned, the word of God and their testimony. So the word of God, the word of God. This is probably the word in its convicting power. We saw this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we read 
that the word of God, for the word of God is quick or living, it's alive, living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So children, you know that a knife basically has one sharp edge. This is a double-edged sword. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. In other words, it penetrates to the very being. It cuts us to the quick. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So it's the word of God. It's probably a reference here as the gospel was spread. But remember, as the gospel goes out, it's the good news. You can have your sins forgiven. But you first have to know you're a sinner. You first have to know that that you are wicked before God. You first have to have your life revealed to you. The word is, is like a mirror, as James says. So you look in the mirror, you say, I don't like what I see there. I, maybe you've gotten all dirty sometimes and you're all, you're all muddy and, you, and your hair is all messed up and your clothes are not in great shape and you look at the mirror and say, oh, I don't like what I see. That's the way the word of God is for you and for me. It cuts us to the quick. We understand that we have offended a holy and a righteous God. We understand that our chief purpose is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. It's not to make ourselves happy. It has nothing to do with that. Our, our fundamental purpose is to glorify God and to follow him, to obey him to yield to his will so that our wickedness, our wicked lives, our sinful lives now are going to be consecrated to God's service. But in order for that to happen, our wills have to be changed. Our wills have to be broken. Our hearts have to be transformed. And that can be a painful process. And there are many people who don't like that. I want to be my own God. I want to be in charge. I am the master of my own fate. And that's simply not true. And so the gospel comes and challenges the world system. It challenges everything that the world stands for. Just see all of the wicked ideas in our society today, whether we talk about abortion ripping unborn children to pieces, or homosexuality, or, or transgenderism, or pornography, or whatever it is. And so the word comes with its convicting power, and the world rebels and cannot stand it. The world shakes its hand in the face of God. And because of the word of God, there is hatred of Christ and hatred, therefore, of his people who hold to that word. Therefore, as the gospel is being spread, people rebelled against it. But secondly, also then, in a derivative way, and for which they had or which they held. See, there's a close connection here, is there not, with the word of God 
and with his commandments. There's a close connection with the word of God and with his commandments. Notice Revelation 12, verse 17. This is the picture of the dragon of Satan who tries to destroy the tried to destroy Christ, the offspring of 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 uh, the, the the key seed of the woman. Verse seventeen: and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Revelation nineteen and verse ten, Revelation nineteen and verse ten. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's a close connection then with the word of God and his commandments in terms of their obedience, in terms of their testimony. It's because they had maintained the truth concerning Jesus by means of a consistent walk that they incurred the anger and the wrath of the world. Why do you think the world, children, young person, why do you think the world tries to entice you? Because it wants you to fall. He wants you to be a hypocrite. That's why. But when you're not a hypocrite, by his grace, when you have a more or less consistent, not perfect, but more or less consistent life, the world cannot stand it. But these were not among those who shrank. These were not those who professed faith and then walked away or denied the faith. No, no, no. These were the ones who, because they were faithful, were subject to the wrath of the world and therefore were killed for it. And so we see then the martyrs and then we hear their cry. They cry in a loud voice, how long or literally until when? How long, O Lord, holy and true? The word therefore, Lord, is despotes, which means master. But notice the characteristics of this master, holiness and truth. So when we think of holiness, we think of purity. We think of purity. And indeed, we know that the holy God will not let the guilty go unpunished. But we also think of truth here. He cannot deny himself or his righteousness. His law is universal. And he will judge according to his truth. O Lord, holy and true. And then they go on and they say, Wilt thou not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the plea here for two things, justice and vengeance. Justice and vengeance. Now, let's pause here for just a moment. You know the the passage that says, don't avenge yourself. You know that passage. We're not to avenge ourselves. We're not to to, uh, have the, uh, the, the vengeance of the sword against others, right? 
how can this be reconciled with the instruction of our Lord not to seek vengeance and to turn the other cheek? Well, notice that the cry here is for God to avenge because he is the one who is the avenger. And this is because, please note, this is not some personal insult. Oh, the person cut me off in traffic or, you know, whatever, or the the person, uh, you know, gossiped about me. No, no, no. This cry for vengeance is because of the fact that the opposition has been against the Lord. It is against the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is fundamentally hatred that is directed towards God that is crying out for vengeance and then directed towards the saints. And notice again that this vengeance is according to holiness and truth. How long, O Lord? How long wilt thou not, not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. The, the ground cried out in the Old Testament. When, there was, when somebody was killed, the ground cried out, as it were. The blood cried out for avenging. And this is what these martyrs are crying. And then we see their consolation. What is given to them? A white robe. It is given to them. It's not something they bought. It's something that has been bought through the blood of Christ. It was given to them by means of divine grace. Notice it was given to each of them. Each of these martyrs was given a white robe. This is the vestment. This is the clothing of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to them and received by faith alone. This is the white robe that is given to each of them And so that's their consolation. But also their consolation is their rest. They were told, they were instructed, that they should rest for a little while longer until their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Their fellow servants or their fellow slaves, we might even say, their service, pointing to their service, Their brethren, they're also brethren, they're part of the same family. Although many of them had passed to glory, there were some, there were still some more whose lives had to be sacrificed for the sake of Christ. We're hearing Jesus is saying, we I hear your cry. Take consolation that you have the white robe. Take consolation that it's time for you to rest just a bit longer until the judgment will come. So I have two points of application today. The first is this. Be prepared for persecution and martyrdom. Be prepared for persecution and martyrdom. Now, persecution, my friends, has been all throughout church history. I want to read just a little bit from about 1,800 years ago. Just a couple of, several accounts of people who were killed for the faith. Polycarp, 
the respected Bishop of Smyrna. Hearing that persons were seeking for him escaped, this was during the Roman Empire, but was discovered by a child. After feasting, the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. And that's something. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, the, the official, condemned and burnt in the marketplace, burned alive. Proconsul earned, urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee, reproach Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied, but not nailed as usual, as he assured them he would stand immovable, the flames on their kindling the faggots, those are the, the, the wood there, encircled his body like an arch without touching him. And the executioner on seeing this was ordered to pierce him with a sword when so great a quantity of blood flowed out as extinguished the fire. Isn't that amazing? But his body, at the instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the pile. And so he died as a martyr. Along the same time, there were other martyrs, such as Vettius Agathus, a young man, Blandina, a Christian lady of a weak constitution, Sanctus, a deacon of Vienna, red-hot plates of brass were placed upon the tenderest parts of his body. Biblius, a weak woman, once an apostate, Adelus, a Pergamus, Pothinus, the bishop of Lyon, who was 90 years of age. He was killed. Blandina, on the day when she and the three other champions were first brought into the amphitheater. So this is a spectacle. This is like being, this is like being at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So instead of going to see Atlanta United play, as the pagans are doing today, instead of seeing that, this was the time when the Christians would be executed in the arena. And so she and three others were brought into the amphitheater. She was suspended on a piece of wood fixed in the ground and exposed as food for the wild beast. But none of the wild beasts would touch her, so that she was remanded to prison. When she was again produced for the third and last time, she was accompanied by Ponticus, a youth of 15. And the constancy of their faith so enraged the multitude that neither the sex of the one, Blandina, woman, nor the youth of the other were respected, being exposed to all manner of punishments and tortures. Blandina, after enduring all the torments, was at length killed with the sword. That's from Fox's Book of Martyrs. There are many, many, countless accounts throughout church history of those who have been killed. So we need to understand, we're talking about people getting killed. This was horrible torture that was involved. My friends, we see this today in places like Nigeria, where Boko Haram, this Muslim group, is, is capturing girls 
enslaving them, and if they won't convert, killing them. So we see the threat of Islam. We see throughout church history the the threat of Roman Catholicism that has killed millions of people. And so my point here then is persecution continues throughout church history and because it does, therefore be prepared for it. Be prepared for it. Be willing to die for your faith. Be willing to suffer for your faith, even apart from death. But in order to do that, my friends, you have to be knowledgeable about your faith. What is it that you believe? Could you explain to somebody what Jesus did for you? Could you explain that why we reject Roman Catholicism and its false teachings? Can you explain that? Do you know why you're a Protestant? Do you? You need to understand these things, not just have a simple faith, which is great, but understand these things because this is all part of the testimony of your witness, which you are to bear to the world. It is not by any righteousness that we have. It's because of the white robe that has been given to me. It's not because of any goodness worked in me and and mingled with my works, infused into me. It's because of the blood of Jesus and his righteousness imputed to me and received by faith alone. Be knowledgeable about your faith. Know what it is that you do believe. Be willing to die and to suffer for your faith. But then secondly, put your trust in Christ and his righteousness. This is the only hope and consolation you must be clothed with his righteousness that is imputed to you. Salvation then, my friends, is by means of faith, not works. And it is this testimony that we give to the world. It is this testimony the world cannot stand in its pride, in its arrogance, in its rejection of God, in its hatred of God. This is what it cannot stand. And Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Children, older person, be prepared. Make sure, make sure that you are trusting in Christ and him alone and his righteousness so that you can give a good testimony. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, we pray that thy message would be applied to our hearts. We please, O Lord, to accomplish thy purposes in us and through us. We pray for each one here that each of us would be faithful even unto death. We pray in Jesus' name.